the vast majority of it was going to pay for the insurgency. It was about impressing the people in Washington rather than the people on the streets of Baghdad. I think there's plenty of evidence that the military did it. And off I went with two suitcases and some bedsheets and a couple of pots and pans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Dyson House podcast, where it's my job to talk to the experts who got us through real issues in international affairs and how you can get involved in the fields that change the world. I'm your host, Peter Bateman. We're brought to you by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. On this episode, we were very lucky to be joined by Nobel Laureate and Treaty Coordinator for ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, Tim Wright. Tim has spent a little over a decade campaigning with ICANN for the total abolishment of nuclear weapons. He, along with other ICANN members, were acknowledged last year for their humanitarian work with the Nobel Peace Prize, the first Australians to be awarded the honour. We'll talk about how the world is working towards complete denuclearization and why countries including the USA, Russia, China, and even Australia have refused to commit to a world free from weapons of mass and indiscriminate destruction, at least in the immediate future. Tim discusses his own journey from undergraduate student to global campaigner and how others might follow in his footsteps. It's an inspiring and sometimes haunting conversation as we delve into the weapons capable of vaporizing cities and killing hundreds of thousands in an instant. Tim makes the case as to why it's so important that humanity never use them again. This was perhaps my favourite episode, so please enjoy How to Stop a Nuclear Bomb with Tim Wright. Hi Tim, thanks for joining us on the Dyson House podcast. It's an honour to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. I might start off with a, a hard question, I guess, but you've sort of had 12 years dealing with this problem. What threat do nuclear weapons pose to the world in 2018? Well, I would say that nuclear weapons continue to pose the greatest immediate threat to the survival of humanity, and we've grown largely complacent to that threat, the threat posed by about 15,000 nuclear weapons that still exist. And the risk of their use seems to be increasing rather than decreasing. That's certainly the assessment of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which you might be familiar with the doomsday clock, they currently assess the threat at, or have moved the minute hand to just two minutes to midnight, which is the closest it's been since the 1950s when the US and Soviet Union first tested hydrogen bombs. It's certainly a dire state of affairs, and I think that unless we get serious about eliminating these weapons, they will be used again one day, and the consequences will be absolutely catastrophic. Just quickly, what are some of the events that you think are causing this threat level? Well, over the past year, we've seen heightened tensions between the United States and North Korea. The relations, of course, seem to have improved in recent weeks with the Singapore summit, but there's certainly a high risk that things will turn sour once again. There are heightened tensions between India and Pakistan. It's easy to see how that situation could spiral out of control. There's continuing risk of nuclear war involving the United States and Russia, or even the United States and China. We see tensions in the Middle East over Israel's nuclear weapon program, elements in Iran who believe that Iran should acquire nuclear weapons, as well as some in Saudi Arabia who would like to see their country develop a nuclear capacity. These are all areas where it's possible that nuclear weapons would be used. And frankly, very little is being done by our own government and most of the world's governments to eliminate that threat. Well, thankfully, there are some people doing something about it. Can you tell us about ICANN, maybe how it began and what its mission is? 
We established ICANN in 2007. That's when we formally launched it. And the objective was to galvanise global support for a treaty that would outlaw nuclear weapons and pave the way to their total elimination. We said when we started this campaign that it was totally anomalous to have prohibitions on chemical and biological weapons as well as landmines and yet no comprehensive global prohibition on the very worst weapons of all and we wanted to change that and we believed that the best way to do so was to build public support and work in partnership with like-minded governments. We took great inspiration from the international campaign to ban landmines which had been very active in the 1990s and managed to build enough support to bring about the mine ban treaty. We wanted to emulate that success and over the past decade or so we've one step at a time built the support needed to get negotiations underway at the United Nations on a treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons and those negotiations were concluded successfully in July 2017. How did you become involved with ICANN? I was a law student and international relations student at Melbourne University at the time and I had been working part-time for a senator, Lynn Allison, who was the leader of the Australian Democrats and she was working on efforts to establish the Convention on Cluster Munitions, the global ban on those weapons. Through that work, I became connected to activists in Melbourne who were interested in nuclear disarmament. They acquired the funds to set up a, a campaign and asked me if I would help and be involved in, in setting that up. So I was the very first ICANN volunteer. I worked for a few months in the ICANN office as it was being set up. I then travelled to Africa. In fact, I'd been planning the trip already, but it became a kind of ICANN mission. On that trip, I visited campaigners in 13 African countries. They were working primarily on small arms issues, and I said, it would be great to have your support for, for ICANN. And that was, I guess, part of the early work that we did to, to build our global movement. And the success of our campaign to date has very much been dependent on the support of African states, of Latin American states, and others that don't possess these weapons standing up and saying that they want to see real action toward elimination. Perhaps this isn't entirely on topic, but it's not every day I have a, a Nobel laureate in front of me. Can you talk about winning that prize in 2017 and what it was like? And was that something that you thought you could achieve in setting out that as an organization and, and personally? It hadn't crossed my mind until we were nominated a few years ago. And we didn't win it the first time that we were nominated. We did win it the second time. We knew last year, of course, that the adoption of the treaty at the UN was a major milestone in international affairs. This was the first time that any multilateral agreement had been adopted on nuclear weapons in more than 20 years. The last such agreement was the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty in 1996. So this was certainly a breakthrough. I guess I was aware that the Nobel Committee might be inclined to recognise that achievement in some way. We had a brief discussion about 
whether we should pair anything just in case. Our director in Geneva said, don't be silly, that's a waste of time. We've got serious things to be doing. I ignored that advice and, and prepared a statement and was glad I had done so because when we received the news, it was just an inundation of calls from media. In fact, I, I missed most of the announcement because I was on the phone to the BBC and, and others wanting immediate comment. We got the heads up about 10 minutes beforehand. It was a thrilling moment and of course this isn't an individual accomplishment, it's a collective accomplishment for our uh, campaign and I think recognition of the broader efforts of the global nuclear disarmament movement as well, including those who have campaigned on this issue long before ICANN was launched. Certainly this has helped us to put the spotlight globally on the new treaty and rally support for signatures and ratifications, which is what we need to bring the treaty into force to make it legally binding and to make it effective in advancing disarmament. Thank you for indulging me in that question. You talked briefly before about the nations that you've managed to get to sign, and most of those nations, or in fact maybe all of those nations, don't have nuclear weapons. Can you tell us about the nations that haven't signed and why you think that is? So none of the nuclear-armed nations took part in the negotiations, and this came as no surprise to us. They've shown no willingness to move towards disarmament. They've consistently obstructed efforts in the context of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, for example. They've obstructed progress in the Conference on Disarmament, which is a Geneva-based disarmament forum over more than two decades. We pursued this treaty, in a sense, as a way to overcome those obstructions. The basic objective of the treaty is to create such a powerful taboo against the weapons, to stigmatise them such that it compels nuclear armed states to pursue disarmament. And I think another important element that we've tried to highlight is the fact that the nuclear armed states aren't alone in contributing to the problem of nuclear weapons. We have another group of states, including Australia, that claim to be protected by and allies nuclear weapons. These kind of security arrangements give legitimacy to nuclear weapons. They suggest that nuclear weapons are an important and necessary source of defence, and those kinds of policies both undermine disarmament and, in a sense, stimulate proliferation. You know, a country like North Korea, when it hears a country like Australia say that well, nuclear weapons are a source of security, you know, that, I think, gives encouragement to North Korea. So we want these countries, these so-called umbrella states under the nuclear umbrella, to take disarmament seriously, and uh, we hope that we'll see a number of them join the treaty in coming years. So far, we don't have any of them on board either, but there's very strong public support in many of these countries for disarmament, and I think it's only a matter of time before they will join due to the public pressure and also the parliamentary pressure. In Australia, we have the vast majority of Labor parliamentarians have signed a pledge saying that they will work to get Australia to sign and ratify the treaty. And we have a similar number of politicians in many of the European countries that are part of NATO 
also very strongly committed to joining this treaty. You know, these are weapons that are designed to incinerate cities, to kill you know, hundreds of thousands of people in an instant. And I just don't think that policies that countries like Australia currently have will withstand the kind of public pressure that we'll see. Short of signing the treaty, countries like Australia have made progress towards the, the ultimate goal, would you say? I don't think Australia has made any meaningful contributions to disarmament in recent years. I think it's completely abdicated its responsibility to fulfil Article 6 of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is a commitment to pursue negotiations in good faith for nuclear disarmament. I've seen no evidence of constructive, serious proposals on this. There are a number of initiatives that Australia is part of, including the Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Initiative, NPDI, but there are no uh, results from that initiative to speak of. Under the Rudd government, there was an initiative called the International Commission on Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Disarmament, ICNND. I think there was a genuine effort by that government and also some commitment by the Gillard government to advance this cause. But because Australia wasn't willing to reject this kind of pretense of protection from nuclear weapons, Australia has really struggled to be taken seriously on disarmament issues. It's very much seen as part of the problem and I think its credibility in this field particularly under the Turnbull and Abbott governments, has been totally destroyed. Apart from government signing treaties and the stigmatisation in general of nuclear weapons, how else does ICANN go towards its ultimate goal of a total nuclear ban? So we, in addition to getting countries to sign the treaty, are looking at ways that we can achieve progress even if certain countries are unlikely to join in the foreseeable future. So in many of the nuclear-armed states, for example, we're actively working on divestment. This involves putting pressure on financial institutions that provide loans and other forms of financing to companies that produce nuclear weapons. We've done a lot of research on the private sector involvement in nuclear weapon production. This is particularly the case in the United States, but also... France, the United Kingdom and elsewhere. There are a number of European countries that don't possess nuclear weapons but which have companies based there that are involved in nuclear weapon production. Some of these companies are working on the warheads, others are involved in the missiles, in the submarines and they're all an essential part of the nuclear weapon modernisation enterprise and the military, part of the military industrial complex that makes our work for disarmament so difficult but divestment is a very tangible step that can be taken and we've seen some really significant gains in that area. Billions of dollars have been divested from nuclear weapon producing companies as a result of our activities. As an example Deutsche Bank in Germany recently divested and it cited the new treaty as the reason for doing so. And that's despite the fact that Germany refuses to join. Germany hasn't joined the treaty because it hosts US nuclear weapons on its territory. 
and it's unwilling at present to end that practice. I think when we start seeing very large mainstream financial institutions like Deutsche Bank take a differing position and saying that these are unacceptable weapons, that will help to change government attitudes. That will be the case also in the nuclear armed states. We've also seen an increased amount of activity around nuclear weapon facilities. Large protests just this week at sites in Europe where US nuclear weapons are stationed. There have been huge protests in Scotland where the UK's nuclear weapons are based. And at all of these facilities, the treaty is being referred to as a reason why the country should disarm. Possession of these weapons is out of step with international opinion. We briefly talked about North Korea at the beginning. I want to bring it back there for a second. Last year, it didn't look good. Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un sending nasty tweets to each other and the missile testing in the Korean Peninsula. But recently, there seems to be some progress. There's been a commitment by the North Koreans to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. Are you optimistic about that deal? And what do you think about the future? I would say I'm cautiously optimistic, which is the phrase that almost every politician has used, but think that's the only way to put it. I mean, this is a really remarkable development that the leaders of these two nations could sit down and talk about this. And I know that there were some quite negative reactions in the US and in international relations circles who from people who felt that it was inappropriate for the United States to be giving that kind of status to North Korea. My view is that it's better that these countries engage in dialogue rather than refusing to talk and insulting each other on Twitter and in the, the UN General Assembly and so on. It's a very positive development and there's much potential for things to move in a very positive direction, but there's also potential for things to deteriorate. I think that things could deteriorate even worse, even further. But we hope for the best, and I think that this has shown that conventional thinking about nuclear weapons can be challenged. It certainly prompted a debate in South Korea around the nuclear umbrella, and I hope that it will push South Korea in a positive direction direction towards joining the new UN treaty and properly rejecting nuclear weapons because denuclearization of the Korean peninsula is to mean more than simply dismantlement of North Korea's nuclear arsenal. It must also involve an end to the kind of US nuclear presence in the region. I hope that this summit will inspire the leaders of other nuclear-armed nations also to uh, show similar initiative. Perhaps one day we'll have disarmament talks between India and Pakistan, for example. So if you mentioned Pakistan and India, how do you see them coming to the table and talking in a similar way than North Korea did with the US? Well, India and Pakistan have always argued that the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is the agreement that was struck in 1968, is discriminatory towards them. In their argument, favours the original five nuclear-armed states, those that possessed nuclear weapons at the time of the treaty's negotiations, which were the US, Soviet Union, Britain, France and China. Those countries are all parties to the NPT, but haven't really taken their disarmament obligations under the NPT seriously. 
India and Pakistan have said that they have no intention of joining the NPT precisely because it treats them differently from other nuclear-armed states. But they can't make the same argument with respect to the new UN treaty because the ban treaty establishes the same standard for all nuclear-armed states. It will be interesting to see how those two countries kind of grapple with this new reality. They've certainly shown no indications as yet that they would be inclined to move towards joining. But these are early days, and I think that as we see more and more states sign, if we can get you know, 150 states parties, then the pressure will really intensify for countries like India and Pakistan to engage with the treaty, perhaps to participate initially in meetings of states parties as observer states. That's an option for all of the nuclear-armed states. I hope that it helps also to build a public movement in India and Pakistan to get NGOs there talking about this. Yeah, we haven't seen much of that at all to date. Yeah, anything is possible, as the, the Trump and Kim summit has shown, and things can change very rapidly if there's political will. Can't say what the leaders of those countries might be inclined to do, but we at ICANN are trying to create the conditions where positive engagement would be more likely. This morning here in Australia, we found out that the US pulled out of the Human Rights Council. Is that something that worries ICANN? Is it something that stands in the way of, of your mission? I think that this is you know, part of a, a trend that we've seen over the past year or so under the Trump administration of increasing disengagement from international forums. I mean, the US argues that the council includes many human rights abusers, which is a uh, legitimate criticism of the council, but you know, the US, of course, is involved in human rights abuses of its own, and this is one of the comments that we're hearing in the news today around the forcible removal of children from their parents crossing the US-Mexico border. A couple of thousand children are said to have been forcibly separated. You know, this is a terrible blight on the US record on human rights and has been subject to much international scrutiny and criticism. And I would say that this is in part a reaction to that, but they're also you know, they're making it clear that their reason for withdrawing is related to other countries. We see a kind of similar level of hypocrisy in the area of disarmament where the United States is often complaining about other countries and their lack of progress on disarmament, or in the case of Iran, the fact that Iran supposedly is pursuing nuclear weapons. Very little is said about the, the 6,000 or so nuclear weapons that the United States possesses. In fact, even in the media coverage and broader discussions around the Singapore summit, there was very little mention of the fact that the United States is together with Russia, the, the country with the most nuclear weapons by far. It was all about the relatively small nuclear arsenal that North Korea possesses. So I think we need to challenge that hypocrisy in the nuclear weapons sphere, just as it's being challenged on the issue of human rights. I kind of want to focus a little bit more on how future activists or future campaigners can get involved in work like ICANN. You have a background in law and arts or law and international relations. 
what other types of expertise were ICANN looking for in the beginning and right now? Well, we have campaigners from a wide range of backgrounds. Initially, many of the people involved in setting up ICANN were doctors who were you know, concerned about, I guess, the human medical impact that a nuclear detonation would have and wanted to alert the public to the grave public health threat that nuclear weapons pose. Most of our staff members have a legal background. That said, we, we only have a very small staff team. It's expanded slightly since the Nobel Prize when we got some much-needed funding, but at that time we had just four staff members. I think we're at seven staff members now. We have people who have studied communications, people who have studied international affairs, you know, a very wide range of expertise. I think that's the, the strength of our campaign. We're not just people with an understanding of the political processes and the kind of international politics, but we also have people who understand how the media work, people who understand how international law works and how international law can be used to advance our objectives, people with experience in public mobilisation, how to build effective networks, how to coordinate coalitions and, and so on. And in terms of your own personal background, was nuclear disarmament something that you had thought about before ICANN, or was it something that you fell into? I had always been interested in disarmament and concerned about the threat of nuclear weapons. I remember as a primary school student learning Japanese, we would fold a thousand paper cranes each year and send them to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. As part of that, we learnt about the bombings and we heard testimonies from survivors of the bombings. I think that had a, a profound impact. I was also involved in the UN Youth Association and was the disarmament officer there. And we held a number of UN General Assembly model debates some of which related to, to nuclear weapons. Of course, this is an issue that the UN has been grappling with since its very inception, the very first resolution of the General Assembly in 1946, in January, related to, to nuclear disarmament. Yeah, that was my kind of early involvement in this issue. I guess I was in my final year of high school when Australia was involved in the invasion of Iraq. That concerned me a lot, that evidence had been fabricated of the existence of, of weapons of mass destruction. But I think what concerned me even more was that the countries leading this effort, or two of the countries leading this effort, the United States and United Kingdom, each possessed nuclear weapons. I felt that that was incredibly hypocritical and that we shouldn't have kind of an international system whereby certain countries are deemed to be responsible enough supposedly to possess these weapons whereas others aren't and for that hypocrisy to go largely unchallenged. So I wanted to be part of a group that would help to establish the same rules for all countries and 
I think also as a as a law student, you know, we're taught that a good legal system is one that treats all people equitably you know, in the same manner and that we can't have some rules for some individuals and others for other individuals. And the same must be the case at the international level. It's been a privilege to be part of a campaign that has helped to reshape international law rather on an issue that of such um, huge importance for the well-being of humanity. You've undoubtedly helped change the world with the work that you've done with ICANN. What advice can you give to young professionals and students coming up with similar ambitions, maybe not even in nuclear disarmament, just issues that they're passionate about? Yeah, I mean, it's been a, it's been a huge collective effort, and I think that we, we have had a significant impact through the, the treaty, but of course you know, there's so much work to be done to get all the way to, to zero nuclear weapons, and I hope that others, including those who might be listening to this podcast will get involved in this work or in in other efforts to reduce the number of and eliminate other indiscriminate unacceptable weapons and improve our international legal system improve international politics because yeah, this is a, a deeply worrying time where we've seen a kind of a disintegration in the international legal system, particularly since the election of, of President Trump. My advice, I guess, to students would be to pursue a career that you're passionate about. If you can have a job that is also your passion. I mean, this is, this is what motivates me and, and I'm in a, such a privileged position to be able to do what I'm passionate about every day. And you know, many of the people involved in our campaign have other jobs and they just kind of manage to spend a few hours a week working on this. And you know, that gives them great satisfaction. I think that we all have something that we can contribute. I think that university is a good time to be starting to make a, a positive contribution and I, I don't think we should just be spending all of yeah I don't think students should be spending all of their time studying and kind of not properly engaging with the world around them there are NGOs that they can be involved in there are student groups that they can be involved in to to debate and to find ways to contribute positively to nuclear disarmament and other issues. For all of our listeners out there who want to get involved with ICANN or even just follow along with updates of what they're doing, how can they find ICANN online? ICANW.org. You can read about the treaty. You can read the treaty text itself. I'd encourage uh, everyone to, to do that, to familiarise yourselves with it. Our website also has ideas for, for actions that you can take. You could help us to build political support here in Australia. I think that's our our most immediate task is to to bring about a change in the Australian government's position. And if the current government continues to oppose this treaty, then I think we need to be looking to a future Labor government to join it. There are many positive indications from Labor that they might 
but we're still some way from getting a formal commitment from the party. So I hope that people will help us to achieve that. And I don't think it should be difficult for us as a country to adopt a principled position against the worst weapons of mass destruction. We should be able to say that we want nothing whatsoever to do with these weapons, and that shouldn't mean an end to the US alliance. There are already a number of states that have signed this treaty that are close US allies, and there's no suggestion that that will end now that they're parties. And I think that the same will be the case when Australia joins the treaty, and we'll look back on this and think, why the hell did we stand in the way of such an important international agreement. I think you know, Australia, sadly, has a history of being slow to come to the table on some of these important issues. It's certainly not the, the image that the foreign ministry likes to present, but that is the reality. Australia was slow to support the mine ban treaty. It was quite slow to come on board with the process to ban cluster munitions. It was really pushed to support those treaties by non-government organisations. And I think that eventually we will succeed in bringing about uh, a change in Australia's position on this nuclear weapon ban treaty as well. And can listeners find you online as well? Yes, active on Twitter. Uh, Tim Miles Wright is my handle. Okay, Tim, I was very excited to have you on and you haven't disappointed. Thank you so much for your time and thank you again for the work that you do. Uh, thank you for your work too, Pete. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and give us a like or review on whatever podcast platform you use or even share us with your friends. You can currently follow us on Twitter at Dyson House. That's D-Y-A-S-O-N House. Remember to check in every Thursday night for new episodes. If you live in Melbourne, then be sure to check out the AAA Victoria's website at internationalaffairs.org.au forward slash Victoria, where you can sign on to become a member and get access to bonus episodes, plus discounted events in Melbourne and access to our academic journal. Remember, we have former guests of the podcast, Richard Iron, speaking with Emma Sky on Iraq in retrospect at the end of June in Melbourne. We'll also be launching the book Revisiting Gendered States with Dr. Sharman Stone. Next week, we have the Walkley Award-winning Fairfax foreign editor and investigations editor at The Age, Michael Bachelard, talking on the role of the foreign correspondent. I know we promised it last week, but it's coming this week. Until then, I'm Peter Bateman. Thanks for listening.